Hello, Deep State Radio listeners. Fall is approaching, and we at Deep State Radio have been busier than ever, bringing you the latest news and analysis of the foreign and domestic policy stories that matter most. Members now receive more content than ever, as we've expanded our content and bonus offerings to include all shows in the network. Members also receive an invitation to the DSR Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and much more. And this fall, we will expand our offerings further with several seasonal projects in the works. To celebrate, we're offering membership at just $5 per month. To take advantage of this offer, please visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. There is no need to enter a promotion code. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash bye. Thank you. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from Cambridge, Massachusetts, where it's autumnal, deeply, deeply autumnal. Even the turkeys, which wander around the streets, are wearing tiny little scarves and wool caps. But... uh, I'm sure it's nowhere near that charming down in the nation's capital where we've got our panel for today, beginning with Dr. Corey Shockey, who is uh, in her office today uh, at the American Enterprise Institute. How are you doing today, Corey? I am exceedingly well. Thank you, David. Excellent. I always like to hear that. And we have Rosa Brooks, who looks like she's in Alexandria, Virginia. I'm just asking of uh, Georgetown University, and so I'll spare the jokes with the title. Um, I'm going to have to move on to some new material. And we are also joined by our friend Stephen Sostanovich. Stephen is George F. Kennan Senior Fellow for Russia and Eurasian Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He also teaches at uh, Columbia University, although this year he has had a leave of absence. He's been a senior diplomat with responsibilities in the former Soviet Union, as we used to call it. How are you doing, Steve? Very well. Thanks, David. Well, thank you. And I'd like to begin with you, Steve, because, you know, uh, every day we are hit with surprising new developments on the front of the, of the war in Ukraine all, for the past week, all of which have been Russian, not just defeat in town to town, but collapse, lines falling back at remarkable pace. The Ukrainians are going in and finding towns that are largely deserted, and there's some very dark tales underneath all of that, I'm sure. But this came at the same time that Putin was flexing his muscles and saying, we're, we're annexing this territory. And, and he's gone through all the sort of processes associated with that. But of course, his ability to assert that has seemingly diminished with each passing day. And people are wondering, What's the consequence? What is the consequence of continuing defeat going to be for Vladimir Putin? You've studied him a long time. How do you, how do you think he's reacting to all this? What do, you, what, do, what do you feel he's likely to do in response? 
Well, look, I've been saying this is the worst week in the worst month in the worst year of Putin's presidency. And uh, every day, as you've been saying, seems to make it worse. It is probably a little too much to jump from that to imagining the immediate collapse of the regime. People, you know, there's a lot of careless talk about 1917 and previous crises of the regime. But I think we're getting very close to that. You know, first, there are some Western experts who've said for some time that Putin's mastery of the information space and of political institutions in Russia is so complete that he can survive a defeat. He can just call it a victory and that will carry the day. But I think we're seeing that that's not true. We're seeing on uh, the media a kind of uh, horror, uh, panic about the, uh, the military situation in Ukraine. We're seeing in the public, if you can believe the polls, an increased state of alarm. We see a huge exodus. I think the latest number is 700,000 people who've left the country since uh, Putin declared partial mobilization. And we even see tensions within Russian institutions, generals being fired, leaks to Western media about clashes between Putin and the military over tactics and strategy. Uh, There was an interesting Washington Post report last week about the intelligence services disagreeing with Putin about a POW swap. There are not yet revolutionary tremors here, but there is definitely an increased anxiety within the elite about whether this set of person, ruling personalities and even the whole system can hold. What do you think, Corey? Well, a lot of what I learn about Russia, I learned from reading and listening to Steve Sestanovich. So I agree. (laughs) As I was listening to him, though, I had that spidey sense going off in my head that most strategy failures are actually failures of imagination. And those of us ardently hoping for Vladimir Putin's failure for him to fall from power, for Russia to reject him. We actually need to remember that what comes next may prove to be worse because the threats to him at the moment, I'd be interested, Steve, if you disagree with this, it looks to me like the threats to him from the moment are threats from the right, not threats from the left. Threats from people arguing that Russia's not prosecuting the war with adequate barbarity and ferocity, and that arguing for escalation to nuclear use in Ukraine, arguing that Ukrainians have no right to the truths we hold to be self-evident. And so I am not making an argument that we shouldn't continue to assiduously assist Ukraine to the complete failure of Russia's invasion and the restoration of Ukraine's pre-2014 boundaries. But I am saying that we need to think about potential bad outcomes 
of governance in Russia failing and becoming worse than it is, and how we are going to shield Ukraine, shield the European security frame, and shield ourselves from potentially a worse Russia than the Russia we're even seeing now. Before I turn to Rosa, Steve, do you want to respond to that? Because I've seen that too. I've seen some of the the kind of worst folks on the right seemingly turning up the pressure. Look, you can't study Russia for very long without realizing that you've always got to be alert to possible worse outcomes than what you're looking at at the moment. That's a given. A lot of the people who are kind of hysterically calling for escalation, for nuclear war, they don't count for a whole lot. And in any case, what they're reflecting is a kind of loss of confidence in the regime itself. And once you have a real political crisis in Russia, then it will be up for grabs, really, who who takes charge and with what agenda. Because whoever it is has to reckon with the fact that this has been a colossal failure and not just a military failure, but a a set of policies that have isolated Russia, the utter collapse of their uh, policy toward Europe and the West. And one of the questions that they'll have to reckon with is, well, do we just limp along as a kind of junior partner of China? Or do we try to rebuild a policy in Europe that gives us, you know, a little more standing? Right now, Russia has really burned all of its bridges to Europe. And the question that they'll have to answer is, are they satisfied with that? Do they think that's what being a great power looks like? How serious do you think the dissensions among serving Russian military that begin to perk into social media and other feedback loops, potentially into Russia. How, how problematic is that piece of it for Putin? Well, it's terrible. <laughs> you know, these are people who are calling back home and saying, listen to that, that set of intercepts that were published in the New York Times. Putin is a fool. We don't know what we're doing here. We're terribly equipped. We're terribly led we are going to fail. And that's the most respected institution in Russian society. Any poll will tell you that. And suddenly the Russians are facing the realization that that institution is just as corrupt as the rest of the, uh, of the system. They're going to have you know, to reckon with the horrible treatment of all of these conscripts who are are being pressed into service, they're seeing a system that can't work. And uh, I'm not saying that that immediately produces a better result. Yeah, it could produce an, a worse dictatorship. But I think it opens up a debate in one form or another about what kind of system is supposed to replace this one. And in those moments, there's an opportunity for better results. It may be that the result, that the leadership comes from within, you know, the military intelligence complex, 
but with a different set of priorities. Remember, it was General de Gaulle who <laughs> solved the problems of, uh, of France and Algeria, uh, you know, coped with a losing war, re- rebuilt Russian or French politics. Russia doesn't have that kind of hero to draw on, turn to, but there will be plenty of people putting themselves forward, both within the deep state and outside it, to say, we've got to do things differently. So, Rosa, comment and or questions. Yeah, you know, I had the same thought as Corey reading some of the coverage, um, which was, okay. the good news is that looks like there are, you know, cracks in the facade of Putin's total control. The bad news is that it may be empowering people who are not going to say, oh, goodness, what a mistake. We should have a genuine, open, liberal democracy. But rather people who are going to say, aha, Putin's only error was that he wasn't quick enough to use nukes or he didn't repress people quite enough or he didn't, you know, he wasn't quite willing enough to completely demolish Ukraine. And, and, and I thought, well, that wouldn't be good. So I'm, I'm interested to hear Steve's take on that. And partly because they, they confirm my general view that things could always get worse. One of the things that I, I have been wondering, and this is, this is my question really to, to both of you, actually, Corey and, and Steve, um, it seems pretty clear to me, and tell me if you think this is right, that were Russia to use any kind of nuclear weapon even if it was tactical, even if it was just in a you know show of strength test, as opposed to actually aiming it at a military base or, or a city, a target in Ukraine, that that would really push away China and India. They do not want to be anywhere near that. But I wonder, so number one, do you think that's right? But number two, I also wonder, um, is there a point where Russia is just losing badly enough? And where the continued conflict is just so utterly pointless and destructive that that also begins to push away Russia's remaining allies, uh, and in particular, the, the biggies like, like China and India. I, you know, it was so striking and awful to read the stories of you know, Ukrainian forces retaking territory that had been controlled by the Russians and just finding you know, essentially ghost towns. Uh, this has been clear, I think, to us for a long time. But maybe the Russians, maybe it wasn't clear to the Russians, or maybe they just didn't care that this is, you know, what's the point? What what would be the point of occupying a country that you have completely demolished? They seemed okay with that in Chechnya, right? So maybe that's, maybe that's just fine from Russian point of view. But is there some point short of the use of a tactical nuclear weapon where the sheer scale and pointlessness of the carnage and destruction also pushes away Putin's remaining allies? He's in a world of hurt here. He's got no promising way forward. And, uh, you know, the articles every day in the American media about how the, the Western strategists are gaming out the use of tac nukes. I mean, that is all just signaling to, to the Russian military and to the national security elite. You know, think about this. This is really a loser. You are not going to get anywhere. The, the whole idea of uh, mobilization is showing itself to be a kind of fraud. The Russians do have manpower problems. What they need to be able to bring to the front right away are well-trained, well-equipped, high-morale units that are well-led and that can actually plan and execute 
uh, serious operations. But instead, they're bringing a bunch of people who are who don't want to be there, uh, who don't have very much equipment, uh, who've got no training, who are going to be chewed up, and the the reverberations back home are going to be terrible. I mean, I think the big problem for the Chinese and the Indians, since you raised that a couple of times, is that if you just look like you're a completely inept, um, dysfunctional great power, then who needs you? For the Chinese and the Indians, Russia has been kind of uh, you know, a semi-attractive great power ally. But if they show that they're not really a great power, the strength of that multipolar world that, that Putin has been claiming he wants to create, it just looks more like an illusion. I mean, I, I would say, though, I'd come back to my the earlier point, the big issue that any new leadership has got to reckon with is not how do we rebuild our relations with India and China? It's what are we going to do about our complete isolation from the rest of Europe and from the United States? That is the, the policy toward India and China has been a disappointment. The policy toward the West has been a catastrophe. And that's where the, you know, the interesting rethinking is going to have to be done. So two quick things I would add to what Steve said. I agree that it's the Europe policy that's a catastrophe for Russia because they have destroyed their future economy by the choices they have made towards Europe. China of the two is in a worse position because it has shackled itself, not just to Russia as a great power ally, as the Russian military is getting its ass kicked by the ballerinas and transvestites of Ukraine. but but also the vision of the world in which the strong do what they may and the weak suffer what they must is the antithesis of the international order the U.S. and its allies are working for, and that China and Russia now look pretty lonely in their support for. India has a Western option, right? If I were the government of India, I'd sure be nervous at how much of our defense industry is built on Russian inputs. But the US is saying, come on in, the water's fine. We want to do business with you. France is saying the same thing. Sweden's saying the same thing. So India can tear its non-aligned jersey off and get a lot better outcome. Whereas I think China has shackled itself to not just a failing ally, but a failing vision of how they are going to force change in the international order. Very interesting. I'd like to move on to another set of uh, questions here, but uh, this is normally where we take a little bit of a break and we say goodbye to folks in the general audience who uh, are, are not members and uh, encourage you to become members. Go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership, $5 a month. You get to listen to all these podcasts in their entirety, plus a lot of bonus content and other good stuff. So I really encourage you to do that. And for the rest of you who are members, we're grateful that you are. And if you stand by a moment, we will resume. 